Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishis. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Osmosis, and today I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Abdi Mahmoud, the Incident Manager with the World Health Organization Western Pacific Region, who's been helping oversee response to the coronavirus pandemic in China and elsewhere right from the start of the outbreak. And we're going to be discussing what happened in that region, what he thinks are lessons to be learned for the rest of the world as we're all continuing to fight this outbreak. Thanks so much for being with us today, Abdi. Thank you for having me. So just to get started, can you tell me a little bit about your role on the WHO team? During outbreaks, the WHO established what we call the incident management system that and uh, that coordinates the response from technical perspective to the operational logistics and to all aspects of the outbreak response. So we established that the leadership role is the incident manager, and that we have different pillars that support the response. And more importantly, is the health operation where we provide technical guidance to the countries, and then we provide them with operation supply logistics. And then more importantly, is the human resource that will be required to respond. And finally, the financial and the and the other responses. And finally, is the partner coordination. In a big response like this, there will be many, many stakeholders involved. So coordination of that will be very critical. And that's one of the uh, WHO's leading role as the functional secretariat. So what were some observations you and your team made early on in the outbreak of COVID-19? I just want to take some time back here in the Asian Pacific region have been really hit very hard with multiple epidemics because of that. So the countries and the region have spent a lot of time in preparedness. So there's a big document called, I just want to show this, Asian Pacific Emergency. So this was the kind of, that helped this region strategic for emergency diseases that have been implemented. So they went through phases of multiple outbreaks and and that helped this region prepare better than a lot of other regions we have seen with the 2003 outbreak and the avian flu outbreak, the SARS outbreak and the pandemic H1N1 of 2009. So there's a lot of investment that happened in terms of the preparedness and it was uh, helping them in establishing the system to detect earlier and to respond. Now, early on in the response, I know there's a lot of concern and question about whether this was spread person to person. Do you mind just walking me through the thought process that was happening around mid-January for the WHO and and how it was decided uh, whether or not it was person to person? Just to take you back in 2003, when we had the South outbreak, uh, it was a lot of lessons were learned and based on the public health measures, which were successfully contained. Subsequent to that, the countries of the region have established surveillance, or particularly pneumonia of unknown origin and the, uh, for influenza-like illness across the, almost all the countries. So one of those surveillance, uh, surveillance is really well established in China, is surveillance for pneumonia of unknown origin. So there were clusters of that that was detected early on and towards the last week of uh, cases have been reported on. So on 31st, we've been alerted, 31st December of 2019, we've been alerted there are clusters of pneumonia of unknown origin. As part of the international health regulation system, uh, when an event like this is reported, immediately it's, you confirm, you verify, because this is a signal. You get a signal, you do the investigation, and once it's confirmed, you alert the rest. So on 5th January, 
uh, we are immediately it was alerted to the wall and we started doing the investigation. Uh, on 7th January, the virus was isolated and 10th January, the full genome of the SARS-2 virus was shared with the world. So the initial investigation, as you know, as an outbreak, as an epidemiology yourself, there are a lot of unknowns. We have learned a lot from it in the last 100 days, but the initial phase, there were a lot of things we didn't know about it. How was it behaving? Is it behaving like the other coronavirus that we've been dealing with? Is it gonna be like SARS virus or the... So there were a lot of unknowns during that time. And in hindsight, what the information we know right now, we can say, oh, I wish we knew that. But at that time, there were a lot of unknown, unknowns. Of course, we have learned a lot and the world has, within 10 days, the full genomic sequencing was shared. So this was a remarkable progress that was done. And in terms of transparency, thanks to the Wuhan Chinese scientists, it gave enough time for the countries of the world to prepare uh, should the virus uh, come to them. So uh, once it's over, we'll be doing detail what happened, what we learned, what we got right. But uh, we, I believe in any outbreaks, uh, we always look at what we know, what we don't know, what the unknowns are known. So in, yeah, it's 100 days and we have millions of cases, a million of cases and more information and uh, over 50 vaccine candidates and trials. So that's a lot of remarkable progress. And speaking of progress, one of the things I'm, I'm specifically curious to learn about is what were some of the most effective strategies that you saw used by the Western Pacific countries like China, Japan, Singapore, South Korea? What were they doing that the U.S. can learn from? I think these are the basic public health measures. These are 19th century. It's not something new. It was used for every other outbreak response. There's one is the number one is a strong surveillance system, the early detection that will help you. Once you detect that case, is intensive and aggressive contact tracing. And then finally, isolating the contacts and quarantining the case. So these are four basic public health measures that will be helpful, of course, and then adding to other public health measures. And then the second layer of that, uh, once you have the case and you detected case management, and then, the, and then based on a risk approach. So when you, you have to have a risk approach, and that countries in the regions have learned a lot of experience was a cut risk approach rather than treating the whole country as one, but uh, where the risk are, uh, we divide into four areas. In regions or provinces where you don't have cases, it's a different. In that you spend prepared preparedness and strengthen your system surveillance, your laboratory and health system. And when you have initial cases, the most important is how you deal with it. So a lot of countries have lost that initial time. And with these viruses, the two, three weeks loss is enough to, to overwhelm the health system. So speed is the essence. And that's what we have learned from Ebola, from this COVID-19 uh, pandemic and any outbreak. Related to that, for you to have, you need to build a system. Korea was hit very hard in 2015 with the mass Middle East respiratory COVID. From that lessons, they learn so well, they build a system, they build their lab capacity, the surveillance system, the community. So the next time, 2018, when they had that repeated, they were able to contain it only with one case. Preparedness, preparedness, it really helped you to that. And it's not only one part, but it's a whole comprehensive approach. In 2015, to get you back, there was so much hospital infection. And right now, this outbreak, 
Korea, will, despite having so much cases, the infection prevention control has been really well managed there. So same applies to Japan, to Singapore, to Hong Kong, and a lot of countries, uh, they invested so much in preparedness that helped them to respond to this COVID-19 pandemic. What about specifically testing? I know right now in the U.S. that's a focal point of conversation. What was the role of testing in Asia? How important was it? I think testing was part of the comprehensive. What they really invested much is the 19th century public health measures. Yeah, you test, but the contact tracing and then testing of that contacts and then making sure the quarantining. And then the rapid response, like Korea, uh, we had one cluster outbreak in Shunjunji, one of the church members, around 9,000, but they expanded to 300,000 members of that. So that the lab capacity, the capacity to share timely, to once you detect, how do you respond? How do you trace those contacts? How do you make sure the case, the contacts that have been identified through the lab are being isolated and followed up? So it really played as additional measure, but what they were able to achieve and what a lot of countries in Middle East, in Europe and in the North America were able to do is what do you do with that test? Yes, you can expand you as a major country in leading the world, but what, you, what do you do with those results? It's far more important than the results. It's very important testing because you are shooting the darkness. It gives you here where the risks are. So how do you manage that risk once you identify the cases? That was the success of, uh, of Korea and Japan and some uh, Singapore and most of the country in the regions using tests for action, for information, for removing those patients from the general public rather than going through lockdowns and then they were able to prevent. Were there shortages of healthcare staff in any of those countries? It sounds like they were so well prepared that they didn't get to that state, but did you notice that even early on in China? And if so, how do they deal with the shortages of staff? No one expected, I think the system will be overwhelmed. Just to give you an example, in Wuhan and Hubei province, the system overwhelmed very quickly. If from an initial cluster of 47 cases in 31st December, all of a sudden, within two weeks, the whole system. So what China or other country was were successful able to do was that all government, all society approach. They deployed 40,000 uh, healthcare workers in Wuhan. And it really made a lot of difference. And they, we have to see this pandemic fight as a like war. You need to win the battles at that point. You need to shut down those epicenters. Of course, you can prevent that. So they put all the resources to making sure the epicenter was successfully implemented. Prevention and that solidarity within the country. It's not unique to even North America. A lot of developed country health system is a federal system, states or prefecture or provinces need to build a system. But once they overwhelm, the rest of the national government and the global government, uh, the global community need to support that. When a house is on fire, you, you don't put water in the neighbor house should it catch fire, but you spend all your effort in switching off that fire. So in that concept, they were able to do isolation and containment. It really helps every country, everyone to see that house on fire, whether it's Hubei or Wuhan is on fire. We need to come together to timely respond to that. Or is 
Northern Italy, everyone needs to come together in that two spots. We need to help each other in that house on fire. And that house on fire can be in Wuhan, it can be in New York City, it can be in Seattle or in somewhere in Sub-Saharan Africa. Did you see stories that were inspiring where people were coming together to help each other uh, in these early months of this outbreak? Our normal instincts during the pandemic is to help each other. Uh, so it came out very, very strong. And of course, the media brings out the worst in us, but 98, 95% people are good and they will go out of their ways. We have seen right now, retired doctors coming back, they, well, they know there's risk to them, a very, very high coming and losing their lives. So a lot of dedication, dedication from the frontline workers to the retired physicians. I think the human nature pandemic has shown people are ready to help each other and even sacrifice. What do you imagine the next three to six months is going to look like in that region? I think with pin pandemic, there will be waves of outbreaks coming in from different parts. Singapore, Vietnam, almost all this country were able to contain the initial wave from coming from China. Successful containment was done, contact tracing. Once the outbreaks, pandemic spread to Europe and other countries, this now dealing with the second wave. Uh, it's very easy to handle one country. You can measure out that, do in, uh, travel and see who's coming from that. But it's everywhere. So how, without self-isolating a country, no country can survive without depending on that. So the main challenge will be how to handle the second wave and the third wave is going to happen. And then the societal impact that it has. People lost jobs. Uh, the economic impact is massive. Uh, we have a country with the middle low resource country going out of the way saying, yes, we can rebuild the economy, but we can bring back lost life. Uh, it takes a lot of sacrifice countries with not a lot of resources to maintain that. Uh, Cambodia, uh, Vietnam, a lot of these countries have gone to the extra mile, but how long can you maintain that preventing the second or the third wave. Uh, so we really require that solidarity in, in finding therapeutics, finding vaccines, helping them with the PPEs. I think resources will be easily depleted in, in even rich or poor countries. So the challenge will be how to deal with the second wave, the third wave, and finally the fatigue. Imagine for 100 days, countries of region have been prepared and responded. So uh, the next three, four months will be continuing and it takes a toll on people's health system. It takes a toll on the society, on the community, and more importantly, the healthcare workers who have been working 24 seven. We have a limited shortage of, uh, this year is the year of nurses and midwife, but there's a massive shortage. So we're using the small existing to go to the extra mile. That, that's a good segue for my next question, which is around uh, healthcare capacity. We know about flattening the curve, and that phrase has been used a lot. And there's also this idea of raising the line of what the healthcare system can do. And so I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on creative ways for countries that are in the middle of it on the first wave, or even the second, third, and the fatigue uh, wave? What can they do to raise the line? I think uh, countries with a lot of resources will be able to do that. It's easy for China to build hospitals in six days or for New York to convert uh, convention hospitals. What we're helping the countries is to, to build the community. 
the community support. Uh, so it might not apply for countries, but even in the, the neighborhoods and other parts. So 40% of the cases are mild. 40% are moderate. 15% is what you require. So how do you find the balance? And uh, that requires very, very innovative. We're able to work very closely with the building the capacity, providing ventilators, and basically like pulse oximeter in a community, and then strengthen the referral system. That we're working, a lot of our support, rich country will take care of themselves. Of course, some of them will mess up through the way, but the vulnerable countries, countries with limited resources, how we do as, as, a, as a nation, as a co global community will determine. So for us is working with the community to find solutions. Uh, very, very important in the next phase. And then the referral system. If you're able to manage the 85%, the mild and moderate within the community and save the hospitals and the healthcare system to manage the 15 and the 5% will require ICU, will, that will be the things. And then the global solidarity, countries will not be able to pull through it. So it requires expertise from other countries. Once the US or the uh, Northern Europe finish, Western Europe finish the outbreak, they need to come and help Sub-Saharan Africa and other countries in the Southeast Asia, uh, countries cope up with the second wave and the third wave. And related to that, also, one of the things that I know firsthand has made a difference is education. I'd really love to hear examples of what you've seen in terms of public health education, both for families taking care of the mild or maybe even the moderate cases at home, uh, as well as the healthcare workers that are trying to stay on top of the latest uh, research and information we know about COVID-19. How does public education, like the stuff we do at Osmosis, how does that impact what happens on the front lines as you've seen it? Absolutely, it has a major, major impact. And I think uh, Osmosis and other colleagues have been ahead, way ahead of the curve in trying when we have lockdowns. Uh, I think you were preparing for pandemic, teaching people we are learning right now how to conduct webinars, uh, to conduct the other, to train the clinicians. Osmosis was way, way ahead of the games. And I think a lot of lessons, the clinicians and, uh, and the aspect. One thing that I want to bring about, I think, which you are doing is the teaching clinicians, public health missions and epidemiology. Uh, very easy. I was a clinician myself. When you look at treating your individual patients, it's very easy, but pandemic is population-based. So that mindset shift, which osmosis can play a very critical role in clinician, your role, very, very important, that shift from hospital-based to population-based intervention. So we are learning a lot and uh, we really, as WHO, we had created a lot of platform for clinicians, for the infection prevention experts and then sharing experiences. So we bring, we have a networks of experts of, from different areas, from the clinical management, using the online platform created uh, by Osmosa and others, we were able to uh, spread and makes a lot of difference. Having the right information at the right time can save life. Thank you. I think my final remark, I'll just say one final remark. Clinicians can play a big role. Educations, online education plays a very critical role. Yes, we'll go through this pandemic, but we know very well we, the world is not ready for the next pandemic. So what we do as a society, as global community, as individuals, really makes 
difference. So that shift that we have been talking about since 1840, the basic hand washing will make lifestyle. So uh, we call everyone hand washing saves life. We knew it from 1840. Let's continue practicing that and then prepare for the next wave. Failure to prepare is preparing to fail. So just as Benjamin Franklin has said, so preparedness, preparedness was the main lesson learned from this region. It helped them. And uh, next, that's some of the lessons in preparedness. Thank you, Dr. Mahmoud, for joining us today and good luck with your very important work. Thank you. I'm Dr. Isha Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Be well. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.